Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has promised to steady the British economy and bring back an era of grown-up politics. Right now, our country is facing a profound economic crisis. I will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of this government's agenda. His Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, delivered a budget statement last week that signalled his intention to see the economy through the economic crisis by issuing a raft of tax increases. The left-leaning Resolution Foundation said the budget combined George Osborne rhetoric and Gordon Brown policy. It turns out this is no coincidence. I'm Molly Blackall, and this week we'll be speaking to our lobby team, who have uncovered how Rishi Sunak struck up an improbable friendship with the former Labour leader, and how their conversations may be framing the economic policies his government sets out. Later, we speak to I's Eleanor Peake, who's been speaking to the self-styled Gimp Man of Essex, who is concerned about the reputation of gimps across the country. If you want to read more on either of these stories and so much more, you can head over to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast for a special offer on a digital subscription. But first, we're here in the studio with I's political editor, Hugo Jai, who's been looking into Rishi Sunak's unlikely friendship with the former Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. Also joining us on the line from Westminster is I's deputy political editor, Arj Singh. Hugo, I wanted to firstly ask you, what made you look into Rishi Sunak's connections with Gordon Brown? Speaking recently with people in Number 10, people around Rishi Sunak, I was interested with some of the interactions that he'd had with various predecessors. People might remember on Remembrance Sunday, all of the former prime ministers, the most ever, were all in attendance at at the Cenotaph in central London. And so one of the questions I was interested in was, uh, which out of those was he speaking to? And uh, I was told he actually had a long chat with Boris Johnson, did not speak to Liz Truss. I think relations there still slightly awkward. But then I was told, well, actually... He's long enjoyed speaking to predecessors, particularly when he was Chancellor. Uh, And to my surprise, when I asked people who he got on with the most, I was told he actually had regular conversations when he was in the Treasury with Gordon Brown. And a big part of this, and, you know, I think calling them friends is probably going too far. Um, Gordon Brown is a famously prickly character some of the time. While these conversations were going on behind the scenes, Gordon Brown was very critical in public of Rishi Sunak as Chancellor, the government, certainly Boris Johnson as Prime Minister then, absolutely scathing in terms of their response to the cost of living crisis. But behind the scenes, very friendly and willing to chat about particular issues. So what have they been talking about? Are they still carrying on these conversations now that he's PM? I'm not aware that they've spoken since he became PM. I'd be very surprised if they don't at some point, because as I say, it it is clear that that Rishi Sunak is keen on consulting predecessors, as, by the way, is Jeremy Hunt, who's obviously the current Chancellor. Jeremy Hunt has had conversations with George Osborne, with Philip Hammond, with Sajid Javid, and and even with Kwasi Kwarteng. I'm not not sure exactly how many tips poor old Kwasi can give about how to (laughs) succeed as Chancellor, but perhaps a, a cautionary tale. What Rishi Sunak and Gordon Brown spoke about, perhaps unsurprisingly, if you know anything about Gordon Brown, it was fairly dry, 
technical policy focus. One of them, and this really is quite technical, but very important, is um, Britain's role at the International Monetary Fund. Obviously, Gordon Brown, when he was Chancellor and Prime Minister throughout the global financial crisis, played quite a big role in helping to coordinate the global response to that, making it slightly less bad than it could have been. And so they spoke about how to get the International Monetary Fund working properly, in particular how to issue the IMF's currency special drawing rights, which is a sort of almost a fake currency that's made up of a balance of all of the real major world currencies. Um, (laughs) And it's something that the IMF does every so often as a way of ensuring that all countries have appropriate amounts of financial reserves at times of great global stress, which obviously the last year counts. And as you can imagine, it's a very, very diplomatically tricky thing to do, which country gets what allocation of the total. And it's something that Gordon Brown was all over. So I'm told Rishi Sunak was extremely grateful to be able to get some of his sort of technical expertise. But the other thing, a bit more broad brush, is the union. Obviously, Rishi Sunak, Gordon Brown, Conservatives, Labour, highly divided over probably most political issues. But when it comes to the future of the union, holding the UK together, they're totally aligned. Gordon Brown, not least because he is Scottish, has played a big role in the union campaign. And one of the things that I'm told Sunak was quite worried about was how can a unionist government pursue the economic policy that it's elected to pursue, that it wants to pursue, without pushing England and Scotland further away, because, of course, the Scottish government, in most areas, including the most basic ones like how much income tax you charge, can go its own way. It's under no obligation to follow the way that that Westminster does it for England. So I think they talked in detail about how to manage that relationship and how to balance those things. Well, one of the things that some people suggested had Gordon Brown's stamp all over it was the autumn budget. Arj, Torsten Bell from the Resolution Foundation think tank described the autumn statement as combining the rhetoric of George Osborne and the policies of Gordon Brown. What did he mean by that? Well, if you look at what Jeremy Hunt was saying in his autumn statement, it felt like a kind of throwback to 2010. Here we were again talking about difficult decisions, about spending cuts having to be made about tax rises, although that was a bigger focus in this autumn statement than perhaps it was under the Conservatives, under David Cameron. And it was all about, essentially, deficit cutting in the rhetoric. And it was in the policy as well. But in terms of who the autumn statement hit, the lowest 55% of earners gained from the policy measures announced in the autumn statement while money was taken away from the top 45%. That's the kind of budget you'd expect from Labour and the likes of Gordon Brown than you would a Tory Chancellor. And also, there was a sleight of hand. Gordon Brown was famous for his sleights of hands in budgets in that the spending cuts were all pushed until after the next election, which some have argued lays a trap for Labour. How do they go into the next election What do they promise when their hands are going to be tied by this budget and this assessment of the public finances? And you've been speaking to people in the Treasury, Arge. So what have they been saying to you? Well, they reject this accusation that they've set a trap for Labour. They say that recessions don't respect election cycles and that it was inevitable now that this recession was going to rub up very close to the next election. And so in terms of where you put the spending cuts, the theory is... You don't want spending cuts now because you don't want to make the recession that we're already in worse. You have to put them back until after the recession ends. And it just so happens that that is after the next election. So they reject the accusation that they've laid a trap for Labour. 
they also say they, they wanted to do that because a lot of Tory critics were saying, well, you're going to make the recession worse by your strategy to balance the public finances. So they've tried to combat that criticism as well with their approach. It's suspiciously convenient, isn't it? <laughs> so tell me, Hugo, how much of Rishi Sunak's sort of current plan, given his friendship with Gordon Brown, do you think we have Gordon to thank for? Probably none of it. Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are not going to be taking dictation from Gordon Brown over the overall shape of their economic policy. But what I would say is I think Rishi Sunak will be very aware that actually he and Gordon Brown are in quite a similar position. They're both coming in after a long period of their own party being in power. Obviously, Rishi Sunak in somewhat more turbulent circumstances. But Gordon Brown, when he became PM in 2007, Labour had been in power for 10 years. We're starting to get maybe tired in the eyes of voters. Well, polling suggests that's what a lot of voters think about the Conservatives now. Gordon Brown knew he might not have very long in the job. In the end, he didn't have very long in the job. Yet, I think Rishi Sunak will be thinking, broadly, he was relatively successful in what he set out to do. Not transformational, not like Tony Blair, Margaret Thatcher, but managed the country, managed the economy through a very difficult situation. And then he stopped the Conservatives getting a majority that at one point looked inevitable. So I think if Rishi Sunak can steer the country through the current crisis, can make the UK a leader in dealing with global inflation, global recession. And if he can then, having come in when the Conservatives were 30 points behind Labour in the polls, if he can then stop Labour winning a majority at the next election, I think he'll be very pleased with that. So, you know, on the policy, as Arj was saying, Number 10 in the Treasury are going to be entirely rejecting the idea they're following in Gordon Brown's footsteps. But in terms of how they're seen in future... Rishi Sunak could do a lot worse than being uh, Gordon Brown part two. So let's talk a bit about that reaction. How are ministers responding to the autumn budget, to the kind of initial Rishi Sunak ship steering period? If you're talking about within the government, the ministers who were appointed by Rishi Sunak, they know what they've let themselves in for. They know that Rishi Sunak has come in to clean up the mess that was left by the short-lived Liz Truss era and to some extent by the chaos of the last six months or so of the Boris Johnson era when he was so consumed by the sort of rolling scandals. So most ministers are probably willing to put up with actually quite a lot for now, for now. I mean, we'll see. We'll get to the new year. If the NHS is getting worse and worse, if inflation isn't coming down, if economic growth is even worse than forecast, it could be pretty bad. But I was talking very recently to one of Rishi Sunak's allies who said that actually what happened with Liz Truss, what happened with that period of chaos, Sunak losing the leadership election and then coming in in completely bizarre circumstances seven weeks later might actually be better for him because not everyone in the Conservative Party is united behind Rishi Sunak. They're not all delighted with his approach. But they've all seen the alternative and they knew that it was unsustainable. And so they are much more willing to put up with the Sunak balanced budget approach, safety first approach, because they can't say, well, there's another alternative mm. or indeed there's another alternative leader. Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are not going to start intervening saying that Rishi Sunak's got it wrong. They probably think he has, but they're not going to say it out loud because it would look ridiculous. That's interesting. So, yeah. I wanted to ask you, Arj, whether almost sort of arguably taking a, a leaf out of the new Labour playbook might play quite well for the Tories at the next election. I mean, we know that Labour are polling quite well, better than the Conservative Party. Does it make sense to sort of try and replicate a bit of that? 
Well, I think it's interesting if you look at the Tory voter coalition, it's, it's very broad. You've got traditional Shire Tories, rural seats in the southern heartlands, as well as those kind of blue wall commuter belt Tories. But then they're relying on all these so-called red wall ex-Labour seats in the North and the Midlands, ex-industrial, very pro-Labour, very staunchly Labour in the past, and now aren't, aren't anymore. They've switched to the Conservatives in 2019. They switched to Boris Johnson. A lot of that was driven by Brexit. A lot of it was anti-Jeremy Corbyn. It looks at the moment, and it has done for a little while, that the Tories are on course to lose a lot of those seats. So the approach that the government seems to be taking by delivering what's arguably a Gordon Brown-esque budget, in a way, in terms of the impact on different voters in different parts of the country, could help them maybe stem those losses in the Red Wall. I've actually been speaking to some Red Wall MPs who say, look, this is a tough budget, but it probably affects my constituents the least out of everyone in the country. And so they're maybe slightly more hopeful of retaining their seats. And just finally, before we let you guys get back to your busy Westminster lives, in your article, Hugo, you talk about a joke from an insider that if the Partygate era was the last days of Rome, the Liz Truss sort of era was the Dark Age and now it's the Renaissance. Is that the mood in camp at the moment? I think that's certainly the mood in camp from the people who've been in Number 10 or in the government non-stop throughout the last year, which is by no means all of them, obviously, in terms of the cabinet. There are more officials. I mean, as ever, the backbone of, of Number 10 and of the government is the civil servants. I think that is the mood. I think they're cautiously optimistic. I've not picked up much enthusiasm for the Liz Truss era or nostalgia for the Liz Truss era from anyone except its most diehard believers, to be honest. I think there's a lot of very, very, very cautious optimism in government in the Conservative Party at the moment. Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have successfully convinced most of their colleagues that there is now no alternative, that they have to take this safety first approach and that they have to suffer political pain and the country has to suffer economic pain for long-term gain. Economically, that is the end of inflation, living standards rising again. Politically, that is, as I say, limiting the size of Labour's victory at the next election, or even springing a shock and the Conservatives winning the next election. But that said, there is an acceptance that things are going to get worse before they get better. As I say, the NHS is in crisis. Inflation is continuing to bite. If the winter gets colder, then energy bills are going to soar, even though they're being heavily subsidised by the government. So things could go worse. Things could go very badly. For now, there is, I think, a belief among the Conservatives that, that things are on the right track, even if they're currently moving very slowly. Well, on that cheery note, we will leave it there. Thank you so much, Hugo and Arge, for joining us. It's been great to speak to you. Stay tuned to inews.co.uk for daily coverage of the goings-on at Westminster from our team of political correspondents and commentators. Reporting like this, without fear or favour, is important. An iDigital subscription gives you daily access to fair and unbiased news whenever and wherever you are. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. Whether it's online or on the newsstand, we are committed to bringing you trusted, non-partisan news and we have a special offer for listeners of our podcast. For more coverage of this and other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast 
and get 20% off a digital subscription to I. In return, you get uninterrupted access to all of our journalism. That includes exclusive newsletters from expert correspondents, access to our app, plus dozens of puzzles every single day. I, for open minds, subscribe today. For the last nine years, every couple of weeks, a gentleman in Essex squeezes into his skin-tight latex suit and hood and heads into Colchester. Sometimes he does his weekly shop at Tesco. Other times he simply wanders around aimlessly. The Gimp Man of Essex, as he describes himself on his Facebook page, has become a minor celebrity in the area. While most of those who run into him see him as harmless and just having a bit of fun, on the other side of the country, in Somerset, the neighbourhood fear their local counterpart. The Somerset Gimp has become a notorious figure in the small villages of Yatton and Claverham in North Somerset. But unlike the Essex Gimp, his intention appears to be scaring residents. The Somerset Gimp has jumped out at locals at least 16 times since 2016, sometimes following them home late at night while grunting. Don't judge a book by its cover. Because someone's wearing them that sort of clothing, it doesn't mean they're a monster. They're, you know, they're going to attack you or anything else. See the good side, but then you've got this guy creeping around in the dark of night, jumping out on women, lifeless, you know, it's just completely and utterly wrong. Eleanor Peake, Eyes People writer, has been speaking with the Gimp Man of Essex, who's worried the Gimp of Somerset is ruining the reputation of Gimps across the country. Hi, Eleanor. Thank you for joining us. I have a first initial question, which I think many people will be wondering, which is how you found the Essex Gimp. So it was extremely easy to find this man. The Gimp Man of Essex has a lot of followers. He's been going for quite a while, I think um, nine years. And... Yeah, I, I discovered a lot about about him. I want to know why he does this. When did it start? It started nine years ago, and he is married. He has a kink fetish, latex fetish, and he couldn't carry on going to kind of sex parties and, and kink parties because he was married and his wife wasn't into that. So he finds an outlet by doing this in a way that he he thinks is harmless. And tell me a bit more about the kind of reaction he gets. I mean, it, by the sounds of it, people take photos with him and, and, and all sorts of stuff. He's a bit of a local legend. Yeah. Well, speaking to him on the phone, he's a lovely guy and he's very funny. And I think that he isn't taking himself too seriously. He knows that it's a, it's a little out of the ordinary to be walking around in an latex suit. He thinks that we shouldn't judge the suit and that the suit is just clothes, really. And we should see it as, as such. And so people go up to him. People want to take pictures with him. You mentioned there that his wife sort of wasn't into the latex mm-hmm. thing, and we also haven't revealed his name. Does she know that he does it? She doesn't know. She knows that he likes latex and that he owns a gimp suit, but she doesn't know the extent to which he has become a minor celebrity in Essex. So she could go to Tesco and see the Essex gimp and not know that she is, in fact, married to the Essex Gimp. Yes, that's tr- that's correct. Oh, that's amazing. And we will maintain that anonymity, as we do with all of our sources. So, obviously, the reason that we're talking about this is because of the Somerset Gimp, who's been in the news really f- for the opposite reasons, does seem to be terrifying people and, and really being quite unpleasant around Somerset. Tell me about what the Essex Gimp thinks of the Somerset Gimp and, and maybe some of the harm that that's doing. Mm-hmm. So, in 2016, the Somerset Gimp 
started jumping out at people and it, nobody it's taken them a while to find out who who did it and there's been some arrests recently so the Essex Gimp doesn't want the King community to be seen as a threat crucially or kind of source for fear amongst people at later night and that's part of the reason that he's doing what he's doing is it yeah I think part of it is that he wants to kind of spread an understanding that gimps are just normal guys you know how have people been reacting to your piece it's been extremely positive and the gimp man of essex also really liked it so that's good it's caused a lot of conversation i think i think it was on um, a few meme pages which is great i mean it is a very funny headline but it's also the gimp man of essex was pleased that people were reading it and maybe seeing gimps in a in a less threatening way and he sort of sees himself as a, as a force for good here, doesn't he? I mean, I know you're saying he takes photos of people and I think he's been giving some of that money to charity as well. Basically, it took a while for him to realise that people really just wanted to take photos with him, share them online. So then he realised he could maybe donate some money each time he had a photo, which is why he's got this Facebook page that's sort of built up. And I think he's raised over £3,000. So I think some listeners might be wondering, really, and a bit confused about the sort of nature, I guess, of the Gimp Man of Essex and what kind of a person he is. Some people may not like the fact that he does this, despite him seeing it as a bit of a laugh and and a positive thing. Having had some conversations with him, what's your take on the kind of person that he is and how he might respond to those kind of criticisms? I think he is a very friendly and harmless guy who, for whatever reason, has this kink and needs a way of expressing it. And I think that he doesn't like being judged and I think he would like everyone to be less judgmental. So I think I think he's generally a force for good. That being said, he has admitted that it is exhibitionism. So I can see why some people might feel uncomfortable with that. If it's something they don't really understand. But I think the point is that he wants to spread understanding slightly more. And open up that conversation yeah. a bit. Well, Ellie, thank you very much for joining us on that. It is fascinating, eyebrow-raising, everything in between to hear about the Gimp Man of Essex, who, again, shall remain anonymous. Thanks very much for having me. It's been very fun. For coverage of this and other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions, so do drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk and don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast apps. I'm Molly Blackall. You can find me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week.